Hello and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, we have an interview with Moa Dowd, who is a security consultant interim CISO, and he's going to walk us through some of the things that he's learned through his vast experience about things like how to separate the snake oil from useful technology when making security improvements and things of that nature. There's some good highlights on working with uh, startups and working with larger organizations and how they can differ. And then just a little bit of IoT at the end where we talk about how the risks apply to different kinds of technologies. So what is your current position and and how did you get there? So my current position is a security consultant and interim CISO. So how I got here is a a very long, um, protracted journey. But I'll quickly summarize it. I worked initially in IT, uh, help desk and service desk, and then that evolved into server support, which moved me into firewalls. So I joined the firewall team, and then from the firewall team, moved into what was then the security team around 15 years ago. Um, I was fortunate enough to fall into security before it was fashionable. <laughs> um, and then and then my, my tenure has taken me from uh, security manager in the defense sector, in media, and recently over the last four years, I was the CISO for a gas utility in the UK. So one of the one of the questions that I've written down that I think the audience will be interested in for those people who are in security but have maybe only been in for you know one two three years, um, what do you see the difference between that security manager role that you mentioned and the CISO role? I think very clearly it's very difficult actually because I think one of the challenges that we see out in in industry is just how different the definition of CISO is. So very much if you look at Gartner um, references, the CISO is very much more strategic, um, very much aligned to speaking to the board and to the leadership team at the same time as, as managing that operational piece. Um, and I think for me, the security manager is actually responsible for more of the technical operational day-to-day running, whereas the, the CISO is, you know, to the point, senior leadership and therefore more strategic uh, and managing up. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, somebody said to me recently that it would be uh, unsurprising to them if in the future, if the CISOs started having business degrees instead of technical degrees, so I think that's kind of similar to what you're saying there. It's a, a different view. You're talking to different people using presumably different language, right, at that board level? Yeah, I, I think it's. I think you're often regarded as a translator. Um, and I think, again, when you're talking to the board, uh, or certainly when you're talking to the leadership team, and very much if you, if you put this in perspective, that they have different department heads coming to them every 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 day or week or month from their reports. So the key to this is actually being able to consolidate a very uh, a large amount of technical data and risk into something that's very simple 
for non-technical people to understand. Um, and that can be difficult. I think that can, that can be difficult. And therein, I think, really lies the skill of, of the CISO. So you uh, you mentioned that your uh, background somewhat was with uh, critical infrastructure, right? Is there a, a distinction for you with the CISO role for other sectors against critical infrastructure? I, I think I'm going to contradict myself here because <laughs> what, what, you, what you tend to see in industry, for example, is, is people tend to stay in their own sectors um, very much dependent. And, and it's not really they stay in their own sectors. I think you tend to be more attractive to um, organisations if you come with the experience of that sector. So I think that's often where that drives. But I don't necessarily, uh, I don't necessarily agree with that position because certainly my experience has been in the defence, media, and utilities. And I think that having the experience of those different sectors actually help give you a broader experience that you can that you can bring to um, you know your, your current employer. So. Um, you know, as with banking, banking has certain regulations which which are very unique. So if you haven't worked in the banking sector, it's something that you're going to have to pick up. Uh, and often for, I think, companies, they would prefer or, or, or are on caution to have somebody who's already experienced in that sector. Um, going back to the question about the utility sector, so I certainly came to the utility sector without experience um, in that area. But again, if, if you're there for long enough, and I think, you know, for me, four years was long enough to get a, a good understanding of, of how the sector worked. And that was with, with um, uh, the relationship with my peers in other companies mm-hmm. to get a good understanding and, and, and essentially hopefully put myself in a position of, of being relatively experienced. Yeah, that sounds uh, very similar to my experience, actually, in a, in a very different way. When we deliver penetration testing services and we look to to talk to companies, one of the questions they always ask is, you know, have you worked in this sector before? What other companies in this sector have you, have you worked with? Even where it might not necessarily be relevant in that context, right? You hack in a website, it's pretty much the same across um, all sectors. But I definitely understand what you're saying there about, you know, it gives them some confidence or it's almost just expected. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think sometimes it's, um, you know, sometimes I think it's a default question to your point without really um, possibly any credibility behind it. Um, because as you say, you know, the, yeah, and we'll probably touch on this later on, is around how, how do you make these the selection processes? Um, and it shouldn't, I think, purely be based on the fact of have you done it in this sector before? Yeah, I think uh, maybe some people consider it a risk and that if you can tick that box, that, that risk's gone and they don't have to worry about it. Yeah, and I think the danger that you have on this, and you know, they're, they're all different variables as to how you come up to making that decision, but what you end up with is, is everybody consuming uh, a vendor service, which is, which is the, by virtue of that vendor being the first to provide that service, yeah. the only one that everyone uses. Right. Uh, and, and and while that may be great for that vendor, it probably doesn't encourage um, competition. So certainly in my experience, one of the approaches that I took was if, if we were looking at having um, pen testing, for example, we would, we would move, we would always have two or three 
different testing companies and we would move every year what testing they did amongst the two or three of them. Um, and what I found with that was they, they tended to be, um, it, it tended to, to concentrate their minds if they were doing a, uh, a piece of testing that one of their competitors had done the year before. That makes, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so no one wanted to miss anything. Uh, and for us, we, we were quite transparent about that. And I think that, that well, I, I think three, maybe too many to manage, but certainly two, I think for me, felt quite comfortable. Oh, I, I definitely know that uh, feeling when doing penetration testing of knowing uh, both that another tester has been there and that other testers will be there in the future. Because, of course, nobody wants to be the person who misses a vulnerability. But I imagine it's uh, quite a nice feeling as a tester to find something that somebody else didn't, just from a personal gratification kind of thing. But, of course, as a company, that's not what, what you want to hear, right? This has been tested before, but something got missed. Yeah, and I think all you're looking to do, all you're looking to do, is make sure that you know the, the, the job's being done thoroughly. That's that's all your expectation is there. And also, I think it's quite interesting when you have a take around how those organisations um, relate to each other. So, I think certainly for me, you want to be in a comfortable position where the the, the vendor that you bring in is very comfortable with the fact that actually another tester is another testing company is is going to be behind them or in front of them. Uh, and those that are very comfortable around, you know, we're, we're, that, that's fine with us, we support that, we'll work with them, we'll share whatever we need to do. That, again, I think gives a level of credibility around where their maturity is. Um, and I think that if, if, they're more, um, if they're more inclined to be closed, then, again, that may, be, that may affect the decision that you make or, yeah, Oh, yeah, I can see that um, if a person is uncomfortable, if a consultant is uncomfortable with somebody checking their homework, then that's a bad sign, right? Yeah, it, it may be an indicator. It may be an indicator for someone. So one of the questions that I wrote down uh, before this uh, the conversation started was, um, how do you separate the snake oil from the useful technology? But I guess we're, we're already getting onto that kind of thing here, but in the context of consultancy, right? So you have different ways of making sure that the security services you're getting are, are suitable. How would you do that in terms of products? With, with great difficulty, Holly, I think. Um, I think if you have a look at different approaches that you can take, so if you're looking at a traditional, uh, not necessarily traditional, but let's have a look at different size organizations. Okay, so, so larger organizations tend to veer towards the larger suppliers um, and, and also tend to have uh, an element of, of managed services. So there's a view that turns around and says, you know, um, trying not to be vague here while being vague at the same time, <laughs> you know, not wanting to name specifically companies. But there are, there are companies who are very large that most people are attracted to because of, the, because of their size. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and they will have a portfolio of products. And, and if you're looking at a gap um, and they have that, it's very attractive because essentially it's just another plugin. Um, you know, it's, it's easier to deal with in terms of uh, procurement, et cetera, because actually it's, you know, you've already got a relationship and a contract with that company. And on top of that, what we're seeing now as well is is with the adoption of more and more SaaS, well, more and more security platforms that are moving to the cloud, 
that ability to be able to just turn on another module is even easier, I think, than it ever has been and will only, I think, increase in the future. So, so that's one perspective. And then the other one comes along to, invariably, they, there will be a gap in the market that these organizations haven't, um, haven't adopted or there's a, there's a gap. And at which point you're going out to market and you're having a look at, at what there is. And, and the challenge that we really have at the moment is that I believe there's never been an easier time to get angel investment for uh, a security product. <laughs> um, and I think that's manifested in itself in, in you know, the market being flooded with new vendors. And it's, it, is, it is a struggle because I think at times and certainly events that I go to, even if you had a silver bullet, you couldn't sell it amongst amongst all the noise. Um, so being able to distract that, I think, is difficult. So in my experience, generally one of the biggest indicators that we have is just around the DNA fit of that organization. And that hasn't always worked, but generally if you're looking at the DNA of that organization, you're looking at are they looking primarily at an exit plan? And I think all of them are. Right, all of them at some stage have, have an exit plan, but actually, does that exit plan is that exit plan in ten, fifteen, or or twenty years, or actually is, is there not an exit plan? And what they want to do is they want to build themselves up to be the next uh, dark trace. Um, dark trace probably not being a good example because uh, again, they 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 have their exit strategy. Um, but one one of the benefits of going with the smaller vendors, especially at startup, <clears throat> is they're able to provide development that specifically <clears throat> answers a gap that you might have for your organization and that level of development you wouldn't be able to um, you wouldn't be able to receive through a traditional larger organization does that make sense yeah it really does i i recently read uh, the lean startup which is a book where they're talking about this kind of uh, getting customer feedback and trying to tune your product. And I, and I can see what you're saying here with, you know, there's a benefit to these huge organizations because they might already have a solution in place for you. But if it's a gap that they don't offer, a smaller vendor might be able to fill that gap for you, get a closer relationship, get some specific development, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think there are, when, when, companies are at their startup stage, they are much more prone to supporting getting a footprint into, you know, because for them, their first you know, five customers are their most important. And also when you look at rounds of funding that American companies have to go through and invariably, if not all of the companies there, um, you know, they're born out of Silicon Valley somewhere. When you get to rounds B and C, you have to have the you you have to have the European footprint, um, and so for them and for UK companies, they could be in a position to take advantage of the fact that they're going to get that early development support mm -hmm. to really nail down the gap that they have in their organisation, um, you know, and and be able to get all of that engineering support and be able to drive a, a probably a very competitive commercial deal as well. So all of those things, I think, can be really appealing. 
But the caveat to that is really dependent on whether the organization is open to being an early adopter of a new technology. I mean, that has a lot of risks, isn't it, being an early adopter? If they're uh, building something or tailoring something specifically to you, that implies it's not ready, right? Yeah, so so I think this is um, this is something that's affecting all of the industry and probably not just cyber. I think it's broader than that. So um, I have a, a colleague of mine um, who I don't mind uh, if I'm allowed to plug. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Saab Sebi, who's working at the moment on a um, startup maturity model that will allow... CISOs and organizations to be able to look at the maturity of that startup and then be able to make a, a decision around whether they have the appetite to do a POC with that um, with that startup. So, you know, so again, in my experience, certain, it's, it's wrong to say really, because it's not just large organizations, because what we see now is larger organizations have got a, um, a, uh, a an, an innovation wing or an innovation hub uh, and, and certainly all organizations now are all about innovation and change so i think some organizations that have almost small startup incubator kind of places that they want companies to come in and and help them work on a specific risk um, that they have in their organization this this could be of benefit and of value I think just uh, something from my recent experience uh, talking on the differences between dealing with large organizations and, and small startups. We were working with a, a customer recently who, who just wanted some consultancy, just a pen test, something run of the mill for us. And of course, our, our sales team asks them, when would you like this delivering? And the question comes back, um, oh, I mean, we'd, we'd like it on Monday. You know, the, the project team's ready to go, but getting on the supplier list takes months for them. I think they said 10 to 12 weeks would be uh, before we could actually deliver the work, just getting on their supplier list. Yeah, and, and um, you're absolutely right, Leon. And I don't, know the answer, I don't know the answer to that. And it's something that I think, I think something that really should be addressed because sometimes there's, there's a big contradiction here between, you know, organizations are talking about they want to be cloud first and they want to be, um, you know, they want to provide their their users with, with um the flexibility of working anytime, any place, anywhere, and and everyone wants to work like a startup, jumping and fail fast, uh, and and they, you have all of these you know industry buzzwords in terms of culturally how the organisation wants to be perceived, but then the reality when you get into their actual DNA is that it's still very traditional in terms of those processes, and so I, you know my challenge on that is. You know, how do you really support innovation and change within your organization when you still adopt these historically traditional models of, you know, are you, what size organization are you? You're a two-man band. Well, we, we can't bring you in. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, you need, to, you need to be an established company with, you know, um, 20 years trading and, and, and these financial books, and you, which, which then takes you back to the usual suspects, doesn't it? It yeah. takes you back to the usual suspects and then you end up with the, in, you know, an element of, of, of frustration around how and what that delivery is um, in some cases. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a difficult one. And I think, you know, I certainly, I'm, I'm experiencing that at the moment. 
But um, I think, again, it's, it's just a game that has to be played. And, and sometimes, again, when you look at this, larger companies are attractive, but I think also they're, they're more challenging in that same perspective, aren't they? Um, and so yeah. there is a perspective that says there are, there are plenty of SMEs uh, and medium-sized companies that actually would probably have a different relationship with you, um, you know, that, 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 you should, that you should at least consider rather than just going after the, um, the unicorn companies all the time. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's quite an agility to working with startups as well, right? So I, I referenced earlier the the conveniences of procurement and getting a supplier on the list. But if you're working with a startup, very often they can just get things done faster if they've got smaller customer bases, they've got smaller projects to work on, that kind of thing. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. And I think I think one of the differences that a startup has, or not necessarily a startup, just a smaller organization is that when you look at the larger organizations, and again, I don't think this is just reflective of security, this is across the whole industry, in order for them to, to, to run that business, they need a repeatable pattern. So they have a repeatable pattern of services, which basically says, you know, square pegs, round holes, this is what we do in these blocks, these are the chunks, this is our work pattern, this is what we do. And if you, if you are a company and that's the way that you plan your work and that's the way that you, you, know, that you deliver, your, system, deliver your, your management systems, that's great. It ties in very neatly. Mm-hmm. Uh, often what we've found is if we ask for any amendment to that and say, you know what, we, we, don't want a, we don't want a square and we don't want a circle, is there any chance of a triangle? The whole system collapses. because <laughs> like, we, we don't do triangles. We do squares. Or circles, and we're kind of like, yeah, but we want a triangle, and what we don't understand, we don't understand because it's not part of our repeatable pattern. Whereas yeah. a smaller organisation, or certainly a startup, will be more amenable to going. We don't, you know, if you want a, a triangle or rectangle, or I'm running out of um, <laughs> running out of <laughs> angles, um, you know, will be amenable to you because there's a there's, there's a lot more vested interest, isn't there? Because it's not just a contractual supplier the smaller organization tends to have a much stronger um, will and desire to build that, that relationship. And I don't want to be, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking probably, um, I don't want to talk about out of term. I don't want anyone who works for a larger company to start throwing stones at me. <laughs> um, you know, and that's not always the case, is it? Because you, you know that certain account managers can be just as, um, just as vested. But as a whole, I think the difference between larger organizations and smaller is, is, is that agility and, and buying in closer to what the business is trying to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So as, as you were talking through the uh, the different shifts there, I was, I was just thinking of something that happened with me with a customer recently where wanting a traditional pen test to come in, do a security consultancy piece, write them a PDF report, right? Because that's how that service works traditionally. And, and their their biggest thing that they wanted to talk about was just how they don't want to report. And in that particular case, what they actually wanted was just like, can you just open some tickets? You know, you find an issue, open a support ticket, we'll fix it kind of thing. And I think that was like a, a really strong example to us where you don't fit within our process, but you know what? I reckon we can do that. We, we, can, we can build that flexibility in because it's a simple thing, right? It's the same amount of information just delivered in a different way in that example. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 that's an interesting perspective, isn't it? And, um, you know, it's uh, again, as, as I'm learning or reiterating to myself here, the customer's always right. 
uh, even when they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's it's kind of like, yeah, you, you are there to deliver on behalf of the customer, whatever their deliverable needs to be. Uh, and I think and I'm sure in your experience as well, you can guide and advise and recommend, but but fundamentally it's down to them as to what they want the output to be. Oh, yeah, we definitely get that on in the context of security risk as well, right? So as a, a penetration tester or consultant, you find an issue, you recommend a fix, and the customer very often comes back with, that fix doesn't work for us. It's the, the same kind of problem. It's just, you know, what what's our plan B? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting. And I, and I think, again, from your perspective, as you know, I think, uh, and, ju- and just probably going off topic and talking about the, those pen testing bits, I think, again, in my experience, there's... Uh, um, and you're probably better to answer this. Um, I think there's an underestimation in the work that is then likely to come through the remediation activity. So often what's seen as part of a project is simply the pen testing as part of you know that project process. Uh, and there's not enough time left in that project to turn around all resources associated to say, and you've now got three weeks to pick up the remediation activity. Um, and often what will happen is, depending on what the maturity of that application is or, or, or whatever the business drivers are, but it, it's often that you could end up with the project still being driven forward while at the same time the remediation activity falls into the post, um, post-review actions. Does, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And we, and we definitely see that. I think it's something um, that a pen testing team themselves have to be aware of is that with traditional pen testing, when you're doing, you know, a once a year assessment of an organization, we'll go in, spend a few days with them, find a, a whole world of vulnerabilities, drop the report on the desk and say, see you next year. And we don't necessarily get that visibility of how difficult that remediation piece can be or, or working that through. And of course, for a, for a company that's got more concerns than just security, like running a business and making money. Um, it can be a, a whole lot of work that we just don't we don't see as consultants. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and, and I think it's something that we were talking about. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was talking about to one of my peers recently, um, and and he was the one that actually brought this up with me and said to me that um, he made sure in the project that he was running that actually they'd allocated the the resources and the associated budget. So often when you're looking at you know, I don't know when you're looking at a scope of work for a pen test because there's there's some driver for that. Uh, as you say, whether it's just an annual test or whether there's something else that's driving that, and you'll say, you know, how much is that going to cost? Well, it's going to cost X, um, and that's and that's all that an organisation will perceive that to be. When actually, it's not X. The true cost is X plus Y. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think yeah. Uh, otherwise, what we we what. I've seen before is that remediation activity goes into an action list to get addressed. Um, and to your point, you know, there's a number of difficulties. It's not always just easy to plug everything that, that gets identified. But again, it's, it's, it's not uncommon, I think, to, to probably be coming around the year later and finding that, that the similar vulnerabilities are still there. Yeah, I think um, some people often say that as a stereotype, it's... Um oh, is it, is it not frustrating when you do a pen test and then a year later you go back and do another pen test and nothing's changed? And of course, for those customers that we're talking about here where they, they haven't gotten through the action plan, 
things have changed. Very often there's more vulnerabilities because there's more missing patches and things like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think we see that. I think when we look at the likes of what NCS have been trying to push with with cyber essentials, you know, again, I think it's like, you know we call this this kit's being referred to as the basics, but mm-hmm. um, I don't think we should call it the basics because the basics implies that it's easy and simple. Um, and I think patching and vulnerability management is is difficult and hard, and and that's why we're still talking about it decades later. Um, because you know, because it is that difficult. So I think it should be called something around fundamentals. You know, fundamentals yeah. for an organisation. But you know, again, you can see why NCSE is trying to do the same, the right thing by telling everyone, listen, if you just do these basic things, right, of making sure you're patched and up to date, your risk profile reduces significantly, and people still don't do it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, so it's uh, it's 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 a funny one, isn't it? Yeah, I, I I get it, right? This this idea of, you know, it's basic cyber hygiene and, and you should do these things because they're simple and they reduce your risk significantly. But just think of something like patching, right? So patching is an easy task unless you're considering at scale where you have huge organizations. And, and also patching almost always affects availability, right? So the stereotype is you install your software updates and then you have to reboot the machine. But what if that machine can't be rebooted? Or it's non-trivial to take that service down. I think uh, I think that's a big thing for for those companies, those organisations that have got to keep things running. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And I think it's I think it's even more complicated than that in a larger organisation because you never rarely get a real time snapshot of where you currently are for the points that you just made that the patches may be applied, but actually they need a reboot for them to be. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, for them to take place uh, and the reboots don't happen until the reboot cycle and when you put that against i don't know let, let, let's go for you know an organization that has a couple of thousand servers that has different applications uh, different server stacks serving different applications you know you can quickly move into you know the hundreds in types of different applications and change cycles for reboots and that, I think, again, exaggerates why this is this is such a challenge. Yeah, yeah, and that uh, that leads into things like WannaCry and all those kinds of hits, isn't it? WannaCry, that attack from 2017 where the big problem was just things not being patched. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's funny how quickly WannaCry uh, is forgotten. Um, <laughs> uh, and I tell you what's quite interesting from that, Holly, actually, is... One of the one of the keys, one of the pieces that sorry, I can my work together. So I think one of the traditional issues that we've always seen is, is to your point, there's there's no appetite to apply those changes because there might be a, a business impact on system availability. Once WannaCry came in, and and suddenly that risk was so high that actually for many organisations, their appetite to make those changes immediately. Um, changing into an emergency change, uh, you know, the appetite was suddenly there. And, and what I understand from many of my peers that I've spoken to is that the those changes were made, and actually there was no impact to, to business applications. So uh, that's quite an interesting perspective that I that I kind of took away is this risk appetite, not having the risk appetite to apply patches because of a perceived risk to the business, but then actually when there is um, 
a higher risk driver, you apply those changes and actually the impact was nil or minimal. So I think off the back of that, I've seen some organizations that have adopted a um, fix on fail approach. So have gone very much more aggressive on their patching and said, "We're, we're going to swap this around. And what we're going to do is we're going to patch everything, and if systems break, we're then going to fix those systems, as yeah. opposed to the traditional approach of, you know, we're not going to patch those systems because we're worried that they might break. Yeah, I, I get that. I also think, um, just talking about what we were saying a second ago with, uh, you know, patches leading to reboots and things like that, I think maybe some some organizations will have been thinking, well, if we patch it and it needs rebooting, there's going to be downtime. But if we don't patch it, it might get hacked. And it's that distinction between a, a risk that's neither guaranteed, even if it's small, you know, rebooting, versus uh, a risk that might seem distant, you know, if it's never happened to the organization, if they don't have, ex- have experience of being breached, those kinds of things. Yeah, and I, and I think you're touching on a really good point here. And something that many organizations struggle with is just the noise that comes back from vulnerability and patch management products. Because oh, yeah. what what you're lacking is context. So, you know, you vulnerabilities are vulnerabilities and they are just something that we just have to live with. That's the reality of where we are. What we need to be able to do is understand of those vulnerabilities, which one of them um, are really affecting our organization mm-hmm. um, and which one of them are actually being exploited out in the world. So I think there's a difference between a vulnerability existing I think there's a difference between defining the the vulnerabilities um, exploitability within your organization. So often we'll see stuff like, I don't know, there's a, there's a vulnerability that somebody might have, there's a vulnerability that someone could get access to um, a VG, the VGA card, right, on your, on your server, uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as an example. And, and we go, right, okay, and, and what would you need to do to it? What would, you do, what would you need to do to get access to that server? Well, you're going to need to have compromised the network in the first place. I mean, and if you've compromised the network already, are you likely to go to the VGA driver to shut down the server? Hmm. You know, I think that's possibly unlikely. Um, so it's understanding those risks that are externally exposable and exploitable, and that helps you prioritize saying, these are the five, seven, 15 things that we have to do as a priority. And the rest of those, we're going to make a judgment call around. We're going to accept it within our patch management process of 30 days, 60 days, or whatever that might be, because there's just, you know, that cadence needs to fall into a, uh, a managed business process. Yeah, I think uh, I, I strongly agree with this idea that uh, vulnerabilities aren't equal, right? And this distinction between like a high impact vulnerability or a critical impact vulnerability. There's so many different ways of measuring that that are sometimes meaningful to pen testers and sometimes meaningful to businesses. I think what what you were saying there a second ago is like, so there's a vulnerability that could have a serious impact, right? But has it previously been exploited? Is it easy for somebody to write an exploit? And of course, if somebody's written an exploit and publicly released it, that's much worse. So there's like these grades here, right? Of, okay, yeah. this vulnerability might be bad. Okay, you can download this hacking tool and it just, you know, exploits it without any skill required. And that's much, much, much worse. Yeah, yeah. No, agreed. No, agreed. And I think, again, when you look at 
when, when you look at teams and when you look at that just just broadly, right? Again, talking for most organisations with with security departments, they're relatively small um, and they're 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 all generally under resourced. Um, and this piece around vulnerability and management, you know, I think you could, you know, it, it feels at times you could throw um, an unlimited budget and an unlimited army at <laughs> at trying to address this. Um, so I think that there needs to be somewhere along the lines. I think the only way that you can do this is it, there, there's so much noise. You just have to try and prioritize that around which, which, where are the things that we're really, that are going to impact us the most based off the criteria that you just said. Um, and we'll focus on that as a priority because we can't do everything for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talking about being uh, under-resourced and, and things like that, that leads back to what we were talking about earlier, right? We're dealing with startups, working with small organizations. There's uh, supply chain risks there as well, right? If you're uh, a huge organization, you've got your house in order, but you're working with small companies, that kind of alters the risk. Yeah, I, I think possibly. I think... Um I think when we move on to supply chain, this is this is a really difficult area because I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that smaller organizations are more at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's another perspective that sees larger organizations, um, especially service integrators, being just as at risk by virtue of them being more attractive to, organ- to you know, if we're looking at the Cloud Hopper report that was produced a few years ago by BAE and uh, PwC that identified um, nation state actors that were compromising service integrators, and that included um, IT service providers as well, and were using, were compromising their network to move across their customer base. You know, so that's that's an example, I think, on just how and a lot of these services now are are kind of cloud based federated systems so mm-hmm. that so that integration between um all of the supply chain is is even more you know i think it's even more condensed and more continue to be than it ever has before so so I think there there's just very clear examples of where large organizations were actually targeted so that they could use them to, to move onto that customer base. Um, and I think that's quite significant. And, and again, talking about startups and those smaller organizations, they tend to know that they need to have their house in order and be able to, to, to articulate that. And that's why you, know, you see those organizations going for things such as ISO 27001 or Cyber Essentials Plus, because they know that it's, um, it's part of the commercial tender that they'll put into to say yeah. that we're secure. Yeah, that uh, that reminds me of a, a conversation I had actually on our last podcast, but in the context of um, security certifications for engineers. And one of the comments I made with that was the benefit of getting certified is um, people know the level you've achieved. And I guess although it's a very different context, that's similarly here, right? If you're talking to a company and you know they have cyber essentials, well, you know the steps that they went through, so you know some of the actions that they've taken to secure their business. Yeah, yeah, and I think, uh, and I think again, while I do promote cyber essentials and why I do promote, you know, certifications for organisations, because 
what they tend to do is have management support, which is the most important thing. Yeah. So, you know, getting that management support is, is really important. But that aside, what we should really be looking for is the outputs that those controls are trying to achieve. Because that that's for me always the million dollar question. So, you know, often when we speak to organizations as part of the supply chain and you'll ask them questions around you know, the controls that they adhere to and, and say uh, a common a common response is, you know, we, we have ISO twenty seven thousand modification and we go, brilliant, that's great. And then we say, okay, do you have the ability to detect um, someone moving laterally across your network onto ours? And they'll and, and you know there'll be that long pause, <laughs> uh, you know, and a bit of radio silence. And they're kind of like, right, okay, what 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 do you mean? And we say, okay, so if someone wants to um, if someone wants to exploit a vulnerability and escalate privileges and move laterally, could you detect them? Um, and they'll say. I'm not really sure you know, what you're saying. Or we turn around and say, actually, if there was an incident today, how would you deal with that? What's, what's your incident response plan? So again, there, there's, there's, you know, we, we need to be able to separate the difference between being able to adhere to the, these compliance frameworks and these, and these standards, but actually being able to translate that into what does that actually mean when an incident actually happens and what does that actually mean in terms of your capability so it's more about it for me it's always been about more about the outputs what is it that you can actually do as opposed to um what you say does, does that make sense yeah yeah i think so yeah certainly um it, it certainly draws that it's the controls that are important not not the uh the tick box right it's the 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 meaningful output yeah and i think if we're looking at um, the NCSE guidance or the NCSE guidance that they've given recently with the NISD framework, which um, affects um, critical national um, infrastructure organisations within the UK. So, so there, they're very much changing their language to talk about are you achieving the outcomes that you desire? So, you know, a, a good example of that is we will, you know, you often see people being asked whether they have, uh, if you have a look at some of the um, outputs that are explained, for example, I'm trying to put this in, in context. I think the uh, the words that the NCSE used in that framework is a principles-based approach as opposed to a rules-based approach, I think is the wording. Yeah, yeah, no, no, very much so, very much so. But I think, again, what I want to concentrate on is, is their perspective of the outcomes is... Do you, whereas historically the question was, do you have a SIM? Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you have a SIM? Um, now the question is, do you have the ability to identify um, indicators of compromise across your environment and be able to respond to them in a defined, you know, in a defined manner? Because that's actually what what the output is. It's not <laughs> yeah, about yeah. whether you have a SIM. Is it? It's it's around actually have you got it? And often again. When we're talking to, if you look at the traditional questionnaires that are sent out, you know, the levels of maturity are based on, you know, do you have this policy? Do you have, you know, um, do you provide training for your staff? Do you have these bits and pieces? When actually the question is, if, uh, you know, if this incident happened, would you be able to detect it? Um, and something that I've been very keenly advocating at the moment is the, is the MITRE kill chain. Uh, and being able to use that as reference. So being able to say, 
you know, somebody using these techniques or if we're just going to use those as indicators of compromise, are you able to detect and respond to all of these? And, and that, for me, would give me a much higher level of understanding of their maturity than the response to an Excel spreadsheet that said, you know, here's the level of tick boxes that we did. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I remember looking at this with uh, Cyber Essentials when they, they changed, I think, from version two to three in the context of, uh, of antivirus, right? So there's um, there's two ways of asking the same question. It's do you have antivirus or can you stop a malicious software outbreak? Because antivirus isn't the only way of doing that, right? You could use something like application whitelisting. And it's uh, the distinction between, you know, have you implemented this specific thing or have you addressed this risk? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And it's a bit like going back to my point around the SIM. So it's turning around and saying, are you able to detect this and respond? But it actually doesn't reference, you know, you you don't need a SIM for that. You know, and in many cases, I think what they've cleverly done is, is try to remove the technology layer out of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you wanted to, you could have a person sat on every single machine just that they're looking for viruses. Yeah. You, know, you know, you could do that if that's what you wanted to do. Or alternatively, you could employ a technology stack if it was, uh, yeah. it, you know. But I think what they're trying to do is, is you know, I, I think what I applaud what they're trying to do or the direction that they're moving to because it's very clearly more around, you know, the the maturity level, which is moving away from a tick box. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you only have um finite amount of time to do these things, right? So it, it shouldn't be mandated that there's one specific way of achieving it. If you can do it through some other mechanism, which has the same output, but is for your organization more efficient. Yeah, very much so. And I think when you look at... um Cyber Essentials as well. It, it's defined for smaller organisations, and so I think I think that's why as well they've they've kind of moved away from that because there's there's probably a danger or there's probably a, a risk that they didn't want to get into, which is being too technology based, and then suddenly uh, complying to Cyber Essentials is going to cost you, you know, X or Y, or invariably there's going to be a field of technology vendors saying buy our product because it complies with cyber essentials which is uh yeah i yeah there's always um there's always extremes as well isn't there so so what we're talking about earlier with with startups where you know it might be a one or two person company and they're saying no no you you need a sim like but we've got two devices yeah yeah no that's exactly the point that's exactly the point that i'm making i think it's it would be um, uh, it would set a field frenzy for all of sales and marketing teams <laughs> running out to all those startups telling them we've got we've got a solution that um, NCSE say that you should have. Oh, so yeah, awesome. I think uh, one thing that 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 we haven't talked about on the um, the technology side of things though, which I, I did want to talk about if we can, is um, the the use of. Uh, I don't want to say new technologies, but maybe just some people will consider it new. So the use of things like IoT and how that's uh, affecting the way that companies make risk decisions. Do you think uh, IoT is strongly affecting critical infrastructure, for example? Uh, I think IoT um, is, is uh, I think if we look at critical infrastructure, it's still around operational technology. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's still, I think there's still, um, a prioritization around everything that's happening in that in that sector around convergence okay between IT and, and OT. I think IoT 
it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's a it, it's a it's a straight tie. Although it's it's a confusing picture, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So IoT, if you if you start looking at CCTV as as IoT, I don't know, or, or defining you know the, the types of devices that we've seen in IoT, and I think it's that definition that I'm. I think it's that definition that I struggle with. Yeah. So, I think that makes a lot of a lot of sense, certainly from my perspective. I was talking to somebody recently about the penetration tester's view of IoT, and I was trying to make the point that for us, it's not that much different, right? If you've got a computing device on a network, it doesn't always matter if it's a, a PC or it's CCTV or whatever. A lot of the same kinds of risks apply. So taking a simple example, the thing needs updates, right? You know, it's, some of the risks are, are shared. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, agreed. And I think, you know, I I'm, agree with you. I'm not sure whether what we're seeing is kind of scareware around IoT devices. Um, and I'm putting, probably putting my head on the block there. <laughs> uh, and I don't mean that in, in terms of being flippant, but you know, is the drive around, you know, there seems to be a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt and FUD being thrown around for IoT when to the points that we made earlier in this discussion, it's around actually what what is the risk? What what is the risk that's actually being exploitable here? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I believe that there was a, a, a recent um I, I saw a light article around one of the T V manufacturers that sent out um out an email to the customers telling them to update or patch their I'm not sure if it's I'm not sure if it was genuine or not. Um, I didn't give it a lot of time. But yeah. But the point I'm trying to make is I'm looking at my Hitachi TV at the moment. If mm-hmm. they send me an email saying you've got to upgrade it otherwise, you know, it, there's a patch that's vulnerable. It, it what 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 is the impact to me on that? It, well, what's the risk? Does that make sense? I'm unclear oh, yeah. about these devices. If I've got a if I've got a fridge which has got an internet connection you know, I, I just want to understand what it, what is the risk and exploitability of someone turning my fridge off, and is that really where we see that? You know, the, the direction of of those um, <laughs> hackers. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure I see it manifested yet. I, I think you're you're right in terms of like looking at IoT in terms of you know what's the actual risk, and and one of the examples I can think of something being manifest in IoT attacks is the Mirai botnet. So that was what 2016. IoT devices used for launching denial of service attacks. But the thing about that manifestation of IoT risk, right, was it's not necessarily the companies themselves getting hit. So if your IoT devices are being used to attack other people, that's a really different kind of risk. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. But again, you know, you're absolutely right. But this goes back down to, to the organization when they bring in these technologies that there should be a risk assessment done on them and, and an impact assessment so they understand mm-hmm. that. I think, I think the point that you've highlighted here is, you know, don't worry about the bullet with your name on it. It's worry about the bullet that's named to whoever because that's more likely the impact that's going to, you know, that's more likely the impact that's going to have to you. Uh, and I think we've seen that before where, um, um, a piece of malware has has gone out to exploit something and then has moved laterally through all different sectors that it was never intended for. Uh, and so again, those organizations had they because they hadn't anticipated that that, that they would be targeted around that 
piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. You know, does that make sense? And, and to your your point, I think there was something around default passwords. So again, one of the yeah. one of the ways that it was able to move around was, was actually because nobody had changed those default passwords. So, um, and and as much as we'll probably say these are simple and easy things to do. We know the reality of this is often that they're also very difficult and challenging to do in the same breath. Yeah, yeah, we we mentioned that earlier, didn't we? It's uh, it's easy to say, but not always easy to do. Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of this is is something that we need to start moving back on the product owners themselves. So I think there's a lot of work that's being done around. Um, again, uh, I mentioned Saab, who's working on um, security around the smart home of the future. Uh, and, and certainly he, he's he's a subject matter expert around IoT devices and what they actually mean. He's written a, a white paper recently, which is being published on on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think he's working. I think there are, there are people that are working specifically to understand what those risks are. And I think if I can pull out the key point uh, that I remember out of the, the recommendations that you made was, was this needed to go back to manufacturers around manufacturers ensuring that they took responsibility for making sure that they were addressing, you know, those vulnerabilities that may be on their devices. And if we, we, we take that in terms of, I've got a, uh, again, I'm looking down the corridor at my skybox, you know, you, you remember a time when those um, um, devices were all shipped out with the same password, depending on, uh, <laughs> you know, the manufacturer, what was it, uh, the, the certain uh, versions that they had. Whereas now they all come with separate complicated passwords, don't they? So yeah. again, I think that's I think again that's just an example of where they took that they took that responsibility themselves, and in doing that, they they took on some of the security responsibilities of the users. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I've reached the end of my list of questions. Is there anything that that you wanted to raise that we haven't covered already? Um, no, I don't think so, Holly. Awesome. Well, I will say thank you very much for being a guest on the podcast. It was uh, it was really interesting. It definitely uh, got down to some of the aspects of uh, kind of business risk that I wanted to talk about. So that was, that was really cool. So thank you very much. No, thank you, Holly, for the invite. It's been great chatting to you and um, good luck with your continuing podcast. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. So guys, we managed to cram quite a lot of different things into that episode, but I'd be interested to hear from you. We talked about how we think you can judge the risk of working with certain organizations and some of the differences of talking to large organizations as opposed to startups. But how do you cover that difficult problem? In your organization, when you're looking at procuring products, how do you know if it's a good product or it's snake oil? Let us know on social media. I'll be really interested to see how you guys deal with that problem.